listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, if you are a believer and you still struggle with sin, I would put myself in that category. Paul is writing to you this morning. But if you're sitting here and you're wondering, you're asking questions about who this Jesus is that people keep singing about and talking about, man, I hope you would hear this morning of God's amazing grace and you would have a desire to know a freedom that can only come from Jesus Christ and knowing Him as your Savior. And that is our hope this morning because Romans 6 is beginning now this big transition Remember chapters 1 and 3, we thought we would never stop talking about God's wrath and His righteousness and our unrighteousness. And then we slowly made that turn. And in chapter 5, about the new Adam and the old Adam, that big contrast. Well, this chapter is all about how a believer who is a citizen of heaven, how do they live in a world where sin is still alive? And so Paul is going to put some very practical application to all the theology he has been building up until this point. Because here's what is true. Whether you were born during Moses' time or you grew up in the Roman Empire or even today, this is true of every single person that has ever drawn breath on the earth. And it's what your heart desires, what my heart desires, our mind is going to justify And your will, our wills will choose. It's true of every single person. Whatever our heart, I'm not talking about the thing, the organ that pumps blood, you know, through your body. But what it is that controls your deepest feelings and and thoughts and the things that you love the most. What our hearts desires, our mind is going to justify and our will will always choose. Even with salt and vinegar chips. Now, I want you to know it's one of my kryptonites. I could give up a lot of things, many sweets, but salt and vinegar chips are my kryptonite. And so Marla's gone. She's gone for several days. She had the menu laid out. And I needed to go to the store. I needed to get some squash and zucchini, an onion, and a tomato. And if you're familiar with our Brookshire's, there's two doors you can go in. One of them, you can go in and guess what? You're right in the produce section. Everything I need, nothing else I don't. Everything is right there. But there happens to be another door. So I walked through the other door right by the cashiers, and I walked past the cashiers, and I stopped. And in this moment, I've got a choice to make. I can go over here and get what I need. But then there's like, you know what? Man, it's been a long time since I've had some kettle salt and vinegar chips. But I shouldn't do that. I've been doing really good, trying to watch what I eat, get rest, drink lots of water. I really don't need to go do that. But what hurt will it do or how harm to just walk down the aisle? Maybe there's something new, some creation out there that I haven't heard of. And what do I do? I walk down the aisle. And it's like every light in the universe came together. The angels from heaven began singing and lit up this little red sign. And you know what it said? Buy one, get one for a penny. And I knew this was God speaking to me. All the other chips, 
My chips right there, the kettle, salt, and vinegar, because they're just enough vinegar, just enough salt. Buy one, get one for a penny. So I walked out of there with some squash, zucchini, an onion, and a tomato, and two bags of salt and vinegar chips. Because what my heart desires, my mind is going to justify. And it went through all kinds of acrobatics to get me to get those chips. And then ultimately, my will chooses. And so this thing, our heart, what our hearts desire, our mind justifies, and our will chooses. And so the problem, man, it really wasn't with my will. It wasn't even with my mind. The problem is what lies in my heart. And so in order for my uh, choice to change, in order for my will to change, my heart has to change. And I could have set up all kinds of accountability. I could have told every cashier in there, you know what, if you ever see me, never let me buy salt and vinegar chips. Whatever it is, slap them out of my hand, refuse to sell them. But all I'd have to do is go to another store. You know, I could go through some like, I don't know, inner motivation and record on my phone, Mark, you can do this. You've got the power within you. Salt and vinegar chips, you know, will make your breath stink. Don't choose the salt and vinegar chips. And I could put that on play to where I'm just hearing it over and over again. You know, I could get some, I don't know, outer motivation. Man, I could probably offer Clint, hey, if you ever see me with salt and vinegar chips, $100 to you. He'd probably follow me around like crazy. But, you know, I could set all these things up and they might work for a while. But ultimately, what my heart wants, my mind is going to justify and my will will eventually choose. And the same is true with all sin, including salt and vinegar chips. And so this battle over sin is really a battle that is fought on the battlefield of our hearts. And that's what Paul is going to talk about today in reference to sin. And he's going to give us three things. He's going to give us something to know, a truth to know. He's going to give us something to consider. And we'll talk about what that means. And then something to present. He's going to lay these out in these 14 verses. So let's look back at verse 1, and let's just walk through this. It begins with a question. I don't know where this question comes from. I don't know if somebody asked this, or if he's using this diatribe thing where it's an imaginary conversation. We don't know. But here's the question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what you see is, it's actually going back to Romans 5, verse 20, where Paul says something, and it's like this question gets raised, and it seems like a strange, outrageous question, because in verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 20, Paul makes a statement. He says, now, the law came in to increase trespasses. Now, we talked about that word, and he's not saying that there was no sin before the law. It's always been there. You can go back. There was sin way before the law was given. But what happens is when the law is given to Israel, the trespasses, the known willful sin gets raised. And everybody is aware of it at this point. So before the law, sin was already there. But when the law was given to Israel, sin was now seen as more serious than ever before. And Paul says, where the law increased... Sin increased, and grace grew even more. And what he's pointing to is that even in the abundance of sin, God never abandoned His people. 
even in the most rebellious state. He blessed them, protected them, provided for them, even uh, cared for them during their outright sin. So as sin continued to increase, Paul says that God continued to be gracious to them. So then somebody's got the bright idea, the bright question. You go, okay, if that's true, then if sin increases and then grace increases... Let's do grace a favor and just sin all that we can. And the good news is, sin or grace gets raised to an even higher state. And I know that sounds like a very strange question, but this belief is something that's been around for a long, long time. If you've ever heard the word antinomianism, it's this belief that says, hey, it's all about grace, and it is. It's all through faith, it is. But obedience doesn't really matter. It's a belief that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. Last week, I read about a a Russian monk. He said that salvation comes through experiencing sin and repentance. So the believer's duty is to sin. And we might look at this and go, that just seems absolutely outrageous. That's not a question that we would really want to raise, but maybe we do it in some other ways. If we've ever said, I know this is wrong. Man, I know this is sinful, but God will forgive me. You know, at least this once, God is going to forgive me. Or what I'm doing, man, it's really, man, if compared to what everybody else is doing, man, this isn't that bad. So we kind of justify it that way. I might say, man, what I'm doing is really not hurting anyone. You know, I've got this under control. Uh, man, I can stop any time. So here is the truth that we need to understand about grace. Grace, when rightly and correctly understood, it never encourages sin. But at the same time, Paul talked so lavishly and almost ridiculously about grace. This was the question that people would ask. And I'm thankful that he talked about grace that way. But when it's rightly understood and rightly looked at, grace never encourages sin. So notice Paul's answer. By no means in verse 2. He says, absolutely not, not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. In no way is that what I'm saying. And then he explains why. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he says when a person hears the truth of the gospel, and they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, something happens to them. Not only are they declared and made right with God, they are dead to sin. But notice he does not say they die to sinning. But he says we're dead to sin. So what does he mean? It means that Christ not only frees us from the penalty of sin, and we've seen that over and over in Romans, but it also frees us from the power of sin. When he says you died to sin, it means you have been separated from the power of sin, but not the extinction of sin. But we're no longer enslaved to it. We no longer have to choose that way, that lifestyle, that way of sinning. And I think theologically, We can wrap our minds around that and go, okay, I understand Jesus Christ died in my place. He lived a life I could never live. And He makes me, declares me right based on faith alone. 
But then we get into this daily struggle of this kind of, how do you really live out that truth? And it makes it all the more difficult. That even though I've died to sin, I've been set free from the power of sin. But the truth is, I still sin. So Paul's going to kind of set out a foundation. He's going to set some hope for believers. And the first point he's going to make is there's a truth to know. Know the truth. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So not every time we see the word baptized in Scripture is it talking about water immersion. Baptizing or being baptized is this idea of being joined with something. Put together with something or someone. It it almost has this picture, if you've ever seen two trees or vines where they've grown up together and you almost can't tell where one begins and one starts. He's saying there is a union that happens. Because look at verse 4 and 5. In this union, we were baptized, we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in the resurrection like His. And what he is talking about is how close a union is between Jesus and believers. And listen, I know we grow up and we live this life and so often Jesus seems so distant. But Paul says this union is so close now between believers and Jesus Christ that it says when He died, you died. When He was raised back to life, in some way you were raised back to life. That is how close the union is. And Paul is saying that is why it's impossible To continue in that life because you have died to sin in your union with Jesus Christ. Because look at verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Now, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. But because I'm a believer in some way, it's as if I was crucified with Him. In order that the body might be brought The body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And I think what he's showing that the hold of sin is so powerful, so ingrained in us that it takes the life, the death, and the resurrection of God's very own Son to break. And nothing else can break the power of sin. So he wants believers to know that through Christ, they are freed from the control of sin. And look at the hope in verse 6. That our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That there is actually a hope even in this life to experience less and less sin. But the truth is, I know we still sin. We still sin willingly. But a Christian can never say, I had to do that. A Christian can never say, I had no choice in this. 
And in fact, the longer that we're a Christian, we should see less and less of the control of sin in our lives. Why? It's not because I'm so powerful and my will is so strong and I've got my mind under control. It's because Christ has freed me from the control of sin. And so Paul says the first thing, there is a truth to know that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're not only justified and made right, you are set free from the power of sin, not because you're so powerful, but because of your union with Christ. But then he says there's a truth to consider. And this word consider is used 19 times in this letter. So what's then the difference? When I read that, those words seem very similar to know and to consider. And when I read consider that word, I think about taking an idea and maybe contemplating it. Um, trying to work through, is that true? Is that right? But consider here is not contemplating or entertaining a thought. This word is taking something that is true and believing it about yourself. It means there's a truth to know. And then there's also to take that this truth is true about me. And I think this is a battle that we all fight. Isn't it easier to have a friend or, I don't know, a family member, a co-worker, and to tell them, you know what, man, you are loved. You know what? You are valuable. and God wants to use you. And, but isn't it so much harder to believe that about ourselves? Believe that I'm loved and valued and, and that God wants to use me. It's so much easier to consider that truth for someone else. It's a lot harder to consider that truth about our own self. So look at what he's going to say in verses 8 through 11. Now, meaning if that is true, that our union with Christ, we have died with Him, therefore we die to sin. We died with Christ. We believe a truth to know that we will also live with Him. There's hope in the future. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also, and here it is, must consider Apply this truth to yourself that you have died to sin and are alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, take this truth and consider it about you. That your old self, the old Adam, has been put away and done with. The one that was under sin and powerless and an enemy of God, that one has been put to death. And that we are to count this truth to ourselves. But it's important to know, and here's getting into the weeds, a little nerdy, that word consider is a present tense verb, which means it's not just something we do once and we move on. It is something that must be done over and over and over each and every day. Each and every day we must fight for the faith to believe that this is true about me. That I've died to sin and I no longer have to choose that. I now have an option. 
And I want you to see an interesting side note. So when you often, at least I do, when you feel defeated and you feel discouraged because of sin in your life, I want you to look back at verse 9. In verse 9 he says, Christ will never die again. He goes on to say that Christ died in verse 10 once and for all. You know, that truth is one of the reasons why our Protestant crosses are always empty. You don't see a Protestant cross with Jesus on it because we believe His work is finished and complete and there's nothing we can do. There's nothing else we are looking forward to. He has completed it. He has done all there is to do to free us from sin. His work is complete because He will never die again. He died once and for all. But you know what that also means? If that work is complete, Christ is calling us to live lives of the new life that we now have in Christ, freed from sin. Not only does He call us to do it, He empowers us in doing it. Because, it's not because we're so great at this, not because my will is so strong, not because I've got my mind under control. It's because the work is completed. So he says there's a truth to know. And then you must fight for that truth to believe it about yourself. And then he says there's something to present. If this is true, I fight for the faith to believe it about me. There's something to present, a truth to present. And it begins in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So the question is, what is reigning your life right now in this day? Because whatever is reigning our lives, whatever is controlling our hearts, we will obey those passions And if it's salt and vinegar chips that are controlling my heart, that is what I'm going to choose each and every time. Because what my heart desires, my mind will justify and my will will choose. And before faith, before Christ, I was under the control of sin and it was my master. I was enslaved to it. My nature was corrupt. My will, my mind, my body was all under the leadership of sin. But in Christ, after faith, He tells me that that control of sin has been broken and I have been given a new master. Because look at what it says in verse 13. If all that is true, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. For now there's a choice I no longer have to continue to give myself the member of my body as an instrument. And that is a military term for a weapon. I no longer have to present that to unrighteousness. But I can present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And you know the most remarkable thing about this passage for me is that Paul is raised with the question of 
If grace is so great, but you talk about it in such a way, it makes us want to go sin more and more. You know what Paul doesn't do when he's faced with a question of sin? He doesn't give them more law. He gives them more grace. He talks about it more and more. Because he wants them to see that is the only hope for overcoming sin. It's not more law. Because what controls my heart, my mind will justify and my will will choose every time. The answer cannot be more law. It has to be more grace. But I know in this life, the truth is, there is this union. It is to be so close. It is so close that I have died to sin because I've died in Christ. And that old self is no longer with me in that. But we continue in this process. The problem is that we often forget the truth. I think that, who is my master? Who am I in? I stop considering, I stop counting that truth about me and I run back to the old master. Because that's where I'm comfortable. That's where it seems I've lived the longest and it is hard for me to live in that new freedom that often seems foreign. But often we've lived under the control of the old master for so long it's hard to see ourselves any other way. And then I read about Booker T. Washington. He was born in the mid-1800s. And he was a man that was really one of those that was the last generation of black American leaders to be born in slavery. And on September 22nd, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln, he issued a proclamation. And this is what it said. On the first day of January... So in a few months, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of the state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforth and forever free. Mr. Washington was nine years old. When the Emancipation Proclamation reached the plantation that he was born under. And he wrote about that day. Imagine this scene. He says, the most distinct thing that I can recall in connection with that scene that I saw that day was some man who seemed to be a stranger. Maybe a United States officer. He made a little speech and then he read a rather long paper. I think when I read this, after reading it, we were told that we were all free. And we could go when and where we pleased. And my mother, who was standing beside me, leaned over and kissed every one of us. While tears of joy ran down her cheeks, she explained to us what it meant that this was a day for which she had longed and prayed but fearing that she would never live to see it. But the truth is, the battle wasn't over. You have three years of war. You you have a president assassinated. You have a political battle that raged in the states. But finally, the 13th Amendment 
was ratified abolishing slavery in America. And news quickly spread that all people were free. And officially, this was true. But practically, it was another matter. Booker T. Washington goes on to write, I can remember as vivid as the sun rising today of a wild rejoicing on part of the emancipated color people. But it lasted for a brief moment. I noticed that by the time they returned to the cabins, there was a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free, of having control of themselves, of having to think and to plan for themselves and their, their children, seemed to take control of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a 10-year-old out in the world to provide for himself. There were questions of a home and how do I make a living and raising children and education and citizenship and establishing and supporting churches? Was it any wonder that within just a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased and the feeling of deep gloom seemed to persuade the slaves in their quarters? To some, it seemed that now that they were actually in possession of a freedom, the freedom was much more serious than expected. Some of the slaves, even 70, 80 years old, their best days gone. They had no strength which to earn a living. To some, to these people, the problem seemed especially hard. And here it is, because deep down, deep down in their hearts, there was this strange and peculiar attachment to their old masters. And he goes on to say, gradually, one by one, Stealthily at first, old slaves began to wander from the slave quarters back to the old master's house to have a whispered conversation with their former owners as to the future. So after a brief celebration, many former slaves returned to the fields to continue the only work they knew as sharecroppers. You see, officially they were free. But practically, it was a whole new matter. It was a whole new way of thinking, a new lifestyle that was foreign to them. Turning from their legal status to an actual experience would require an inner transformation. And those who found this challenge too difficult went back to what was familiar. So not once do I ever believe that the battle over sin is something easy or something that you can simply move past but what we see is Paul is setting a foundation for the battle over sin. And it's a battle that is fought on the battlefield of our hearts. And what does he do? He doesn't turn to more law. He turns to more gospel over and over again, talking about what Jesus has done. And he's saying it's not just a way we get to heaven it's a way to battle sin even in the meantime. Because one day we sang about it today. Sin will not be able to touch us. But in the meantime, that battle rages on. So the only way to change our hearts is to overwhelm our hearts with the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Reminding ourselves over and over what Christ has done. Because what our hearts desires... Our mind will justify 
And our wills will choose every single time. And now may our prayer be that we would overwhelm our hearts with the gospel. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.